My name is Dr. Vicki Williamson, and I'm an international authority on the psychology and neuroscience of music. So you have a book that I think is on my top five books now, and it's called These Studies Imply That a relatively short period of time spent on music lessons can have a positive influence on the way that a child processes words. Something that I'm really interested in is the benefits on motor skills and obviously the benefits for the practice of sport. Yes, that's a really nice field of study, the effect of music on performance. That's been led by Professor Costas Carigoris for years and he's done loads of really nice studies on multiple aspects of sports performance so weightlifting endurance speed hey guys i've got a quick request could you subscribe like and comment if you like the content we're making it's really important to support the channel and carry on having great guests like we've had so subscribe like comment very important thank you Can I ask you to introduce yourself the way you would want to be introduced? My name is Dr. Vicky Williamson, and I'm an international authority on the psychology and neuroscience of music, having published over 40 peer-reviewed articles and books on the subject. I was an academic for 15 years, and I'm now the chief science officer for Audison, a company that produces music for well-being. So you have a book that I think is on my top five books now. Um... And it's called You Are Music, How Music Reveals What It Means to Be Human. Um, and I asked you before, but could you uh, say again why you decided to write it first? I decided to write You Are the Music because it was the book that I would have liked to have read when I was starting to study the psychology of music. So I had a background in psychology and I paid for my higher education teaching music. I actually started teaching guitar when I was just 14. And it was a revelation to me that I could study and teach this subject that brought my two great loves together, understanding what it means to be human in the context of the lives that we live with music. But when I was studying, it was a lot of scientific papers to read, which are wonderful, but to have something that communicates in really easy, accessible language, the, the most interesting and provocative studies that have been done in the subjects, the ones that really make you think, that's what I would have loved uh, to have had on my shelf when I was studying in university, to have something that motivates me to, to see that this is an evolving story, but an incredibly powerful, revealing story of the emerging knowledge of how important music is to our daily lives. Yeah, um, I'm so, I was so happy about loads of different statements or research that you talk about in the, in the book. And obviously we're going to try to discuss it. But yeah, when, when did you start um, process the writing of it? I'm asking because I may think about writing a book as well. And I've got different ideas, but it's a really long process. So you have to stay focused and motivated. You do. You do. Absolutely. And when I started writing the book, I had no children. <laughs> so you and I both have children right now, little ones. Um, so I would not presume to assume my method from back then uh, would apply so now. You, you finished it before they 
they were born? Yeah. Or you finished it whilst they were, okay. I finished, I finished it before we started our family. Yes. So I had this, these glorious things called weekends back then. <laughs> so I did <laughs> yep. my Monday to Friday job, right? No, I had a Monday to Friday job. I was postdocing in, in London at the time. I was actually studying the impact of uh, congenital amusia on music processing. So these are people who are born tone deaf. It's quite a rare condition. It affects 1.5% of the population. And I was looking at their general intellectual cognitive abilities um, and how they might relate to their experience of, of music. And, and then in the weekends, I would sit down and dive into a much larger pool. It's, it's sort of the equivalent of sitting in a jacuzzi during the week where it's a real focused, intense experience. And then in the weekends, diving into the sea and looking at, looking at the approach of the book is a whole lifespan exploration. It goes from pre-cradle to grave, actually, and looks through the windows uh, of the different parts of first our childhood, then our adult life, and then how music can impact towards the end of the life and our memories as well. So to, to, it was actually a relief for me uh, to have this escape because you are so focused when you're an academic on your little pool and becoming that expert who can, who can lead a field um, to be able to dive into what everybody else was doing. Like when you went to a conference and you thought, oh, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. I used to blog about everything that I saw at conferences because I just found everybody's subject fascinating. And that the, the book is just an extension of that, really. So at the beginning of the book, um, you do say that you, is that your husband? Yeah. Um, who got you a, a, for your birthday or for Christmas, uh, a website birthday, subscription or something, and you started a blog? Yeah, he, he got me musicpsychology.co.uk as my 25th birthday present. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> well, as yeah, yeah. well, it's a romantic. good one. It's romantic. If, if you, you just... are a computer nerd like him, that's incredibly romantic. Uh, <laughs> and he said, you, you talk to me all the time about these studies that come about music. And I can feel the sort of frustration in you that actually your work is a very concentrated, small window into that world. So this is a way for you to express it. You can, and you can write however you like. As academics, we have to learn to write in a certain way for papers. On my blog, I can write however I like. So you hear me uh, in the same way that you hear me now chatting about the things that interest me. Obviously, there's, um, I've, I've, well, it's one of my resolutions is to write more blogs on the theories of acoustics. But um, how did you, how did you approach it? Did you just, just write it? Write some started to write some what you were seeing or learning. Did you have a, an imposter syndrome as well? Because that's what I felt. Why would I know any anything better than many other acousticians? But um, then you know, at some point, you just don't have the choice because you know it's there's there's a lot of benefits of doing it. Exactly. Exactly. So what was your experience? Uh, far more imposter syndrome in the day job than I ever felt. Uh, when I was writing the blog or even the book, because I, I wrote it, I wrote them both in the way that I would talk to you now. 
And, and very often, I my PhD supervisor, um, Professor Alan Badley, he wrote, writes books by taking a dictaphone into the Yorkshire Dales and stomping around talking. And then he converts those notes. And I very often did that. It used to be a little dictaphone, and nowadays we have phones, of course, where you can just jot down ideas. And Professor David Huron, who's a, a giant in the world of, of music science and music psychology, he is never without a notebook. I remember him saying, take a notebook with you wherever you go. Wherever you, whenever you have a thought, you can write it down. And that becomes your goldmine, and that becomes your inspiration. And you are literally sharing your idea. And do you have imposter syndrome in a conversation? where you're just chatting with a colleague. It's, it's that level of informality. And that, that's, what I, that's what I liked about it. I never held myself up to academic standards. It was me talking as I would to a friend, colleague, family member, my cactus. I used to have a cactus that I practiced my academic talks at, poor thing. But it was the way I would talk normally. That's the voice that you hear, whether it's coming out of my dictaphone translated into notes or or just tapped away what my thoughts were about studies that came around. So that was one inspiration, new studies that came out, and I just wanted to be able to communicate that um, to the community to say, this is the latest on this on this subject. Isn't that interesting? Or opinions are turning here. Wow. Or look at this new way we can explore this facet of musical achievement. Or look what musical thing this animal can do. You know, all these interesting thoughts. And to, to spread the word. Uh, rather than deep dive, sort of the deep dive and the professional standards, I think is where the imposter syndrome tends to creep in, at least for me. It's probably why it's been so nice to read is because obviously you're talking and it's, it's really disconnected from an academic style where, um, yes, you do explain some experiments and um, papers that have been released, but you also like, speak in very layman's terms are really easy to to understand for for most people and it's a bit there's there's a very nice storytelling as well behind it so i call the all the ingredients for for a good book um and how many blog posts did you have to do until you thought you or you got approached is that right you got approached after writing a few posts by an editor to write your book or you you thought I may write a book but I'll just start with that blog because the the opportunity is there already no no didn't have that much forethought behind it it was uh, okay. a natural approach that came to me from an editor within Icon Books who ended up publishing the book who said we would love to publish essentially a collection of your blogs if you can think of an overarching logic for a collection rather than here are some of my articles an overall story and what i felt did not exist at that time there were good books that looked into the science of music it wasn't a brand new thing to do but nobody had done it from the lifespan approach so you could dip in and out to whatever stage of life most interested you and you could also get this impression of what the tagline of the book is, which is why it's so much a part of what it means to be human, because it impacts our entire lives. Before I dive into some quotes and discussions on that, um, what's your musical background? So, and what instruments do you play? <laughs> that's a great question. 
Um, so I was very much a musical mongrel growing up. I loved picking up instruments, learning a little bit of this and that. My dad would go to um, secondhand shops, charity shops in the UK when I was growing up in the summer holidays and come home with a with a battered flute or bongos or something. And we'd go to the library and get a how-to book. So there you go, you got six weeks. Have a crack at that. <laughs> but uh, my, my formal education, as they say, my lessons were in classical guitar. And I did that from the age of five to 15. And I taught from the age of 14 onwards, children of varying ages, private lessons, uh, eventually becoming a peripatetic music teacher for the local education authority, moving around schools and teaching. And I, I did that to pay for my higher education, as I said, which was following the psychology route. And finally, when I specialized, decided to take a master's in the psychology of music, that's when they came together. And I was nearly 20. And when did you do that, that um, master's? I did not. And where, sorry, where? I did my master's in the psychology of music at the University of Sheffield in the UK. It's one of the oldest courses uh, in the world. And it had premier experts in the UK at the time and still does. It's a fantastic course. I, I came, I, I, I did full circle event. My last academic post was at the University of Sheffield teaching that course. And I can't tell you how excited I was to go in and see the staff board on the first day, exactly the same staff board with the in and out clickers for each member of staff that had been there when I was a master's student. And there was my name. I texted that to simply everybody in my phone. <laughs> um, I need to read it because I need to read the quotes. Uh, but there's scientific evidence shows that parents experience a release of stress hormones in the brain on hearing a baby crying, resulting in an increased heartbeat, raised blood pressure, and a cold sweat. And I thought, that's why I can't sleep after my baby wakes up, or my son. And I've really struggled to get back to sleep, and I'm so alert. Um, there was a, a program that you probably, or a documentary on um, iPlayer, or BBC, that you've probably listened to, to there was um showing how alert and uh our brain was ready for action as when we were hearing babies crying and our reflex are really good what's your comments about this and how what would you advise uh to get back to sleep to fall back asleep after your you've just soothed your baby or oh. Your child. Yeah. So I I was not a parent when I wrote that, um, and I am now. So I have new reflections, I suppose, on, on what I wrote back then when it was in theory. I know the practice now. I, I know what it's like to be woken up every 20 minutes by a baby needing to be fed. Um, and it's cortisol. It comes down to cortisol. So that releases uh, a shot of cortisol because the parent needs to wake up immediately. And evolutionarily speaking, that's a dangerous situation immediately because there is a very loud noise giving away your position to any predators. So the emphasis is to get you up very, very quickly so that you're capable of soothing this infant uh, in whatever practical way they need. You know the list. Are they wet? Are they 
hungry, so on and so forth, I'd be in pain. And um, after that, what you do to, to soothe the baby is in line totally with what you need to experience as well. It's about regulating the nervous system back down from fight or flight down to rest. And what we do is we rock them. So there's rhythm for you, slow, gentle rhythms. We might sing softly or make cooing sounds. So these gentle, cyclical pitches, usually moving down in pitch, feeling soothing. All those soothing elements that we do to the baby in order to help it rest. Feeling our heartbeat, there's rhythm there again, uh, are what we would benefit from with with the same animal, ultimately. But as the parent going back to the cold bed, nobody's going to rock us to sleep. So how do we induce that same experience that has soothed our baby? Well, music has a great many of those elements, so can be functionally as effective. It can have the slowing rhythms, the regularity, the soft pitches, the cascading cyclical tones that help to regulate that cortisol level so it dissipates and induce the release of counter neurotransmitters, things like dopamine and serotonin, that will bring the body, trigger the parasympathetic nervous system, which means bring the body out of that fight or flight state and into rest again. So that's why... Um, I noticed, especially with the the second one, we used to put obviously very lullabies or white noise, and we very often can fall back to sleep after with with white noise. Um, and I've I think it's with reading on my phone or Kindle is best technique to to get calmer <laughs> and fall asleep again because um obviously nothing doesn't doesn't do anything watching videos or oh, is exciting and even podcasts i thought sometimes i fall asleep with a podcast but it's um it's still quite stimulating yeah um It all has to counter uh, that stimulation you've had from the shot of cortisol. So when I listen to um, audio, which I do sometimes myself, it tends to be things I've listened to a great many times before. You know, there's nothing really to engage me. It's it's a familiar sound. Um, That seems to be a key element to it, that you do not want to start engaging the cognitive functions. <laughs> so those are the things where, that will raise your brainwave speed up again and, and bring you into a wakeful state. It's all about regularity, familiarity, cyclical sounds, bringing you back down into peaceful, restful, psychophysiological state. Cool, interesting. Um, and then the Mozart effects. Um, we break a few more urban myths such as the idea that listening to music and in particular our friends Mozart can help make children smarter mm-hmm. and there's even websites that talk about this thinking that we can uh, you can have some benefits for your IQ it's quite interesting I, I would say yes it's obvious but um, this you know 
when you read the, I don't know if you know, um, maybe Jack Jack from the, um, is that the Incredibles in, oh, in yeah. English? Yeah, the, yeah. The, the movie. Um, there's a book, uh, or like a short as a bonus that is with Carrie, his babysitter, <laughs> and she's having a really hard time. But at the beginning of it, uh, she puts like a, a CD, some music and Mozart, and she says that it can, um, stimulate the intellectual abilities of babies that's why she's doing it um so i thought is it is it really true but it doesn't seem to be it shows how much it's got into the public conversation (laughs) that even baby jack jack's being uh being experimented upon yeah so when i studied music psychology the mozart effect which I, which I should say is a very basic experiment in that you would expose people to uh, a short amount of music and then ask them to complete uh, a cognitive task. Uh, usually it's, well, the traditional one is a paper cut folding task, so it's kind of spatiotemporal uh, task, but it evolved into basic intellectual tasks like memory recall, things like that and demonstrating an improvement in performance for people who listen to a certain type of music versus a group that didn't or that listened to a control sound like white noise. And the traditional pieces, Mozart Sonata KV448, which uh, was used in the original study. And this went, this had a huge impact. It was actually a one-page study very limited description, but it just took off this idea that there could be this quick fix uh, to make us feel smarter was to listen to music. We all like to listen to music. It's easy to listen to music. So let's do that and we'll all get smarter. What needed to happen before everybody uh, ventured into those applications was replication and validation in different scenarios. And it was one of the big learning lessons of music psychology uh, that that didn't happen, but the attraction of the idea was such that it ran away from the academic field before we saw it out, out. It was out the door, and I looked at the latest evidence um, for this podcast and was slightly concerned to see that the Mozart effect, since I last had a look at it, has been applied to epileptic patients. The idea that it might help with epilepsy. Uh, and this is this is another level of uh, of concern for me personally. It's, it's one thing to say we should expose children to music and they might get smarter. Well, at the end of the day, you're asking children to listen to music. That's that's not such a bad thing. But when you get into the realms of clinical applications, that's that that could be very serious, and that warrants real proper investigation. And I, I found a paper in the Journal of Cognitive Psychology. Uh, where the experts didn't pull any punches uh, when they were describing the Mozart effect. And they described it in their own words, I'll use, as unfounded authority, underpowered studies, and non-transparent reporting appear to be the main drivers of the Mozart effect myth. So that's in the words of the authors. And they actually uh, replicated the traditional idea, which is a cognitive boost, from listening to this particular Mozart sonata, 
And they said uh, all it caused was distraction, irrespective of whether the person liked the piece of Mozart or not, that the people in that study were better off not listening to it in terms of their that, that was a serial memory recall task that was done. The core of the message that music can be beneficial, you don't want to throw that out. You don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. What, what is the sort of legacy of the Mozart effect is uh, of taking a small insight and, and blowing it up into a big truth. And that when that is packaged in an easy-to-use, uh, quick-fix it, it takes on its own life and its own existence beyond which is justified by the data itself. But the more people explore it from the academic side of things, we begin to see where music can be beneficial and where there are just random effects that we should not be applying in, in any setting, whether it's cognitive boost or epilepsy or anything else. The key to good music science, as in any science, is replication and validation. There you will find the truth of where the real power of effects are. It makes me think about a little bit about the, um, obviously, you know, I'm sure you know this, um, the impact of uh, watching TV for kids. And then um, there's, I hear so much um, people saying that it's, Watching TV for a child is bad for their brain development. And I don't know if well, you've probably gone to that topic, reading that and what is actually causing that problem and why people have said this. Um, but then, yeah, first instance, you think, oh, I will not expose my child <laughs> to, to TV. And then after that, you read a bit more about it and you realise, oh, actually, it's not exactly this. It's just that there's... In, maybe in some certain, certain countries uh, that I won't name, but parents have been put their kids, their child, for hours, hours in front of TV, and therefore it's got an impact on their health, on their um, speech uh, development, understanding of the language, um, their motor skills, because they don't get to move uh, as much as kids who don't watch TV. And you think, you understand that, okay, so they can watch a little bit of TV, obviously not too much, don't put your child in front of the TV for a whole day, but it's it's not that watching a screen will have, will damage their brain. That's, um, I don't know if you have that same um, understanding of it. That's our understanding. And you get a bit more, slightly more relaxed about about them. It's, it's okay to do that for like, like a four four year old just put them in front of the TV for half an hour so that you can cook some nice food and there's some there's some health benefits of it. And they can watch Bluey as well. So they can there's tons of nice programs that are either very cute and or you learn very a lot of things like um social manners or real life things that you wouldn't even think they they need to be aware of it. Um so yeah. Totally. That's my view. Totally. I, when it comes to, to screen time as a parent, I went down a very similar pathway to you. And it's it's like I said with the Mozart effect, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's a lot of quality in what is made for children's television these days. There's a lot there that's designed to teach. I have um, a son who is nonverbal autistic 
And there are programs that are made specifically to help children who are facing challenges with, with verbal expression. And to, to dismiss it all as it's a screen, therefore it's bad, is, is like saying it's Mozart, therefore it will make you smarter. There's, there's so much nuance in there, uh, as well as your individual family situation, as you rightly say. Um, I find that the screen time is invaluable. My other child is growing up in a trilingual environment, of which I speak one and a half of the languages, I would say, if I'm being generous with myself. So how do I supplement that in her education? Um, to do it with a reasonable amount of time in our home life, online education is the way. So in all of these situations, I think it's a tool. In the same way, people don't like to think of music as a tool, but it is, it's a technology. We invented music. It didn't crawl out of the sea or fall off a tree and humans went, oh, look at that music. We invented it. And we invented it because it had, and we kept doing it for millennia because it had the power to do good in so many ways. And I think people are coming around to seeing screen time in, in that sense that you, you just have to pay that little extra level to think about what are the benefits that it is genuinely giving to your child and to your family life and to, to use the technology in the way that works for you. So um, you say that music is um, an influence on processing words, which is even more interesting. So uh, together, these studies imply that a relatively short period of time spent on music lessons can have a positive influence on the way that a child processes words and that this effect gets stronger as a child continues their lessons. It's really interesting um, because that's when it goes to, okay, if you practice music, it doesn't only develop your musical abilities, musical skills, but it also gets into the everyday life mm. skills. Mm. Yeah, it's a hot topic in, in music psychology is what we call transfer effects. So what benefits do you see outside of the musical training domain? And in theory, uh, it makes total sense. Music is whole brain stimulation. Music activates multiple areas of the brain simultaneously and interconnects them uh, in a way that very few things in the world do. And as a result, you think from a, let's say, from, a, from an exercise point of view, if you work these areas of the brain, they're, they're going to improve. But the interesting thing is when you dive into that, because actually the evidence for general transfer effects isn't that strong. It is not the case that musicians are simply smarter than non-musicians. You can throw that out. When you dig deep and you, you look at the elements of music and how they might be cross-stimulating the brain and whether or not that long-term effect is carried through, you see some of the very interesting case studies which are being followed up by brilliant scientists as we speak. So, for example, people living with reading difficulties as they grow up, and there are specific phonological and rhythmic benefits that musical training can afford, that you do see then benefits in aspects of reading in phonological awareness. So it gets quite specific to do with sound, the elements of the sound itself. 
Are you thinking of people who are dyslexic or any anybody else as well? Can you yes. give other examples? Yes. And what, what also are the benefits? And does that how would you quantify them in, in percentage or the improvement compared to somebody who's not who's still had issues with reading and hasn't been exposed to music, like as you say, your control control group? Yes. Yeah, so typically these studies I should say involve active music participation. So the child is learning to to vocalize, to sing, to play an instrument, to be involved with the choir. It's, it's active music participation where you really see the best effects in relation to transfer. There's a wonderful professor called Nina Krauss in the US, and I still remember the very first conference I went to where she asked, she was asked, you know, if I listen to music, will my child get smarter? And she said, it's sort of like asking me if you're going to get fit by watching the Olympics on TV. You need to be a part of it. <laughs> you need to activate those areas yourself in order to see the benefits. Um, in terms of dyslexia, uh, Professor Katie Overy has done many, many years of study looking at the benefits for phonemic awareness. So I like it when studies use the actual skills you're trying to see change in real life as their measure. So they're looking at, at reading ability in the same way that a teacher would and seeing the benefits that children who take part in extra music education experience in terms of the, the comfort they feel when reading, the confidence they have when, when reading, and the amount of information that they're able to take in. I'm also reminded of, uh, because of my own personal uh, situation with my, with, with my nonverbal son, how different kinds of uh, music therapies can help people struggling with speaking. So my son is not able to make any verbal sounds. And for children like him, there is melodic intonation therapy, which was developed uh, in the US and pioneered by uh, Professor Gottfried, Gottfried Schlaug and his group there. Uh, and that is a very specific type of therapy that, that targets the vocalization skills and uses vo vocal and motor mimicry in order to help stimulate vocal expression. So what I think is very important to take away from any discussion about what kind of music should I be involved with if this is the well-being outcome that I'm hoping for is that question needs to be specifically targeted for each case. So what kind of music intervention might be best for a nonverbal autistic child is likely very different for a dyslexic child is likely very difficult from a child who's dealing with social and emotional developmental issues. And this spans the whole lifespan as well. If you have a patient with Parkinson's, if you have somebody recovering from stroke, if you have somebody in a coma, they're all, the potential is there. And that's the beauty of music and the diversity that we can accomplish in performance and in listening as well gives us that ability to target very specific well-being outcomes and optimize it. When I ran my, my lab, Music and Wellbeing, at the University of Sheffield, my tagline was always, we're moving from the intuitive to the informed. 
application of music. We know music is wonderful and it makes us feel good. The vast majority of the population is listening to music at some point in their lives to help them feel good. That's the intuitive use. How do we move from that to an informed use with the evidence to say, this is the right music to give to this person in this way at this time in order to achieve this outcome alongside whatever else pharmacological, physiotherapy, speech therapy, whatever program of intervention is appropriate for their case. Music is an adjunctive. It can be added into any therapy program without conflicting. It's not going to have any side effects of clashing with different drugs. The potential is there if we can work out the appropriate way to integrate it into somebody's care. Great. That's really interesting. Um, then I note... Um, which I said thank you <laughs> when I made a comment on it. I said the diversity on instrument experience is associated with later musical excellence. There's also some um, like um, comments and on the exposure of music styles that obviously you're very how how do you say um if you're used to listening to a certain style, you may not like instantaneously like another style. And um, so, I mean, we can, that's two two topics, but, you know, when maybe your music education was like this, but my music education was very classical based. And therefore, I guess it's a bit like, you know, academics, but um, you get very very um focused on that type of music and you kind of neglect the other types or the other cultures or maybe not cultures but um other styles of music and you don't you never appreciate it until you actually listen to it or you're forced to listen to it for for a while and then you think oh I actually like it. And it's probably also why we don't like um, an album straight away because it's it's new to us. So it's after we've we've listened to it. So it's 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 interesting because I have a very different view on the way you should raise your um well, your child with music and instruments and they should you should expose them as much as possible to a large variety of music styles and also we had the belief that if we were focusing on one instrument in particular, it was good and we were just staying very, again, very focused on it. Whereas what you mean, and I can, maybe I'm reading behind, uh, between the lines, but it's, there's huge benefits of playing different instruments as well. And I can definitely agree because it's not it's not intuitive but um i remember from playing keyboard to uh, and i started percussion and the style or my view of playing or interpreting music um with keyboard was much more cute when i had a bit more experience with percussions and you just don't realize it until you do it Sorry, it's long. There's a lot of explanations around that. But what's your view and experience and research as well? No, absolutely. So I would say my my view on it uh, as a parent is the key is exposure. And I remember when I first studied music psychology, 
there was a study that said um, that the children who had felt autonomy in the choice of their eventual musical instrument were more satisfied with the course of their music education, that the, the fact that they liked that instrument, they liked the way it felt or the way it sounded, that they had the sort of free choice to say, yeah, this is, this is my instrument. This is my voice. This is what I want to do going forward. And that, that element of, of self-actualization and identity within uh, music performance, even within small children, is key. And you don't get that unless you've exposed them We've given them a diversity of instruments to start with. And I do exactly the same thing. You know, I I go through the recorder and the violin and all the lovely sounds that children can make on them. Um, show my daughter how to play, how I play the guitar, pick out the few keyboard tunes that I can still remember uh, with the aim of stimulating that interest and, and also giving her that autonomy of choice so that I, I, the more ways you have to express yourself in this world, the better. Um, mastery, real mastery uh, of an instrument of the kind that we see, particularly in, in the Western tonal harmony tradition, um, takes a huge amount of hours and focus and dedication. So you can't have everything. To achieve mastery, you have to focus. But when we're talking about the early stages of music education, diversity is absolutely critical um, to, to developing that, that interest. I think it, it, it was Graham Welsh, who is one of the uh, really, I want to say the leading voices has been for many, many years. I won't embarrass Graham by saying how many. Uh, but he has been vocalizing the importance of music education for children for, for a long time. And his caveat is always that musical experiences to be successful must be perceived as engaging and meaningful to those who participate. You, you can't get away from the fact that we are human beings and we are going to be motivated to do what we love. Ultimately, that's the path that we're going to follow. Um, so to present not only a diversity of instruments, but in an engaging and a fun way. It, you know, if you ask me, I, I never reached the heights of a professional musicianship. But if you ask me what, what I enjoyed most about my music education, a lot of it comes down to my teacher. And, and the fun way. Crazy the impact of the teacher. Yeah. Yeah. The brilliant way that he presented uh, my instrument to me and the opportunities to play in all the different styles because you think classical guitar, I'm just going to be play, playing Fernando Sor or whatever. But I pay, play pieces spanning six, seven hundred years of musical repertoire across the globe too. You know, not really limitless options. What sounds do you want to make with your instrument? So that, that element of making music fun and engaging, so critical. It's crazy the the impact of of a, te a teacher can have on their students, and obviously the sometimes it can be damaging, but sometimes they not just not just for music, but generally. Um, there's there's so much responsibility. 
Yeah, I was just going to say that that idea of the perfect performer on stage performing three hours of music from memory perfectly is, again, a model of incredible human accomplishment. But I have to wonder myself how much exposure to that leads so many people to say, well, I'm not musical. That person's musical, the one on stage. And yet all, just about all human beings are musical. I say there's there's less than 2% of people are are born with a a disorder that prevents them from um, perceiving music in the way that we do, in the the organised manner that we do. And some people experience brain damage that has similar effects. But if you exclude that, everybody has the element and potential of musical sound within them. And there are cultures on this earth where there is no separate word for to sing as to speak. And if you say, well, I can't sing, they say, I don't understand. You're speaking. Of course you can sing. So bring, bringing music culture into everyday lives again and respecting the maestro model and the expert because, my goodness, what they give to us in our lives is incredible. But that is not being musical. That is not the only way to be musical by any means. And that's what a good teacher will put across. Yeah, and I completely agree. And it's it's something that I'm fighting a little bit as well. Um, do you need to play music for excellence mm. to perform well? And at what point, what sort of balance do you need to have? And And, you know, playing things by heart is... Something I've never really had to do, um, but I know like pianists and maybe violinists as well. But pianists have to play without any any books most of the time. Well, that's from my generation, so it's um, it's an extra pressure. But on the other hand, you it does make you stand back from the the book and think more about the music and the flow. Something that I obviously I said before the recordings I'm really interested in is the um, benefits on motor skills that music has and obviously the benefits for the practice of sports. Now, I'm really interested in quantifying the benefits, how much better like a pianist would be if, if um, like a footballer plays piano. Mm-hmm. How much better would he be to uh, his twin Oh, you, you've got the study any. in mind. It's a twin study, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, one twin gets to play music and the other one doesn't. <laughs> Let me see what happens. Yeah, yeah I, it's a really interesting question. And, and I know I was being facetious just then, but you, you can see the difficulty in actually designing the type of research that would give you that kind of answer. And that's that's the problem we face in, in looking at music benefits is that it's not like we can look at the benefits of a change of diet or so on and so forth, which you can look at in a small period of time in somebody's life in a controlled way. Looking at the impacts of a lifetime, a childhood of playing music versus not is super difficult because you, you have to do it cross-sectionally, really. Um, so what you can never fully disentangle uh, is the nature versus nurture argument and the extent to which this person was always going to play better football 
um, irrespective of whether or not they ever touched a piano key. But if you did put, put them in front of a piano, they'd probably do that well as well. It's really, really difficult to disentangle the nature and nurture uh, of those effects. I think where where music and and sport really really are so beneficial are when it comes to the social and emotional benefits of of, a, of performance and of engaging with others in these activities. That's that's where I think of the benefits for my own children. That playing with somebody else, performing with somebody else, working with somebody else. It, it is so important for development. And I'm sure that's what the, Plato and Aristotle both said, that primary education should begin with music and sport because of the developmental bonuses for the person at, at that very critical young age. So they, the ancient Greeks knew what they were talking about. Um, so you're tapping into them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also important for the mood regulation. Obviously, If you play a happy song, you'd be more likely to be happy doing that song than um, unhappy. Um, but, you know, sometimes, obviously as a parent, you get very tired, and in the morning, you just put a little bit of music and you end up, you end up singing, mm -hmm. and you end up dancing with your kids. And... You know, when you've got two who are constantly competing with each other's toys and activities, then that um, avoids avoids that action for half an hour. <laughs> 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 no, I'm, I'm just making a big caricature of it. But um, yeah, it's, it is important. And also, you know, in motivation. And, and we're, we're not going to be able to talk about everything. Maybe we'll, have, we'll definitely have to organize another episode. But... Um, You know all the thing around the yeah mood regulation, and you talked about the um, for sports again, but I can't remember the quotes. Uh, I can't find it again. It's basically um, if we play music, yeah, it's a blocker. That's it. Music work well as a blocker for the signals of mental tiredness right. and physical exhaustion. Yes. Yes, that, that's, that's a really nice field of study, the effect of, of, of music on performance. Um, that's been led by Professor Costas Carigoris for years, and he's done loads of really nice studies on multiple aspects of sports performance. So weightlifting, endurance, speed, uh, and looking at the impact of, of music in all those different scenarios and showing significant effects consistently. Um, um, the example I used in the book was uh, Haile Gabriel Selassie breaking a world record to Scatman being played in the stadium. And, and from that point onwards, the decision was made not to, ch not to play any athlete's personal choice of music uh, during large competitions because the acknowledgement is that it's performance enhancing in reality. So what we see nowadays is athletes coming out onto the field or coming by, by the side of the pool with headphones on because they're listening to their sound that motivates them and that puts them in the right frame of mind. So music for many athletes can be a, a key component of, of mental training uh, as, as well as supportive, you know, in, in the sense you were talking about, in the sense of um, 
supporting the energy needs and the motor drive that is necessary in sport. So there's another one on emotion and mood regulation, obviously, in adolescence and that young people use it much more. And that's why also we so re- remember so well uh, the music that we were listening to when we were teenagers. And also it's part of our musical identity. And I can definitely relate this. You know, we all, we're all listening to a specific type of music and it would allow us to make one for us to fit in basically yeah so it it serves uh both social uh, and personal goals and needs in adolescence which is a very challenging period of time Uh, the memory experience that you're referring to is draws back to a psychological theory called the reminiscence bump which is these periods of our lives which are so charged Uh, both in a physical sense, the body is changing in so many ways, hormones are being released, so on and so forth. But also in a lifespan sense, we're experiencing a lot of big things for the very first time. Falling in love, being emancipated, gaining financial freedom, exposure to the workplace, transitioning from school, all these sorts of things. That these memories become very hardwired in in a sense that we can recall them with so much more ease. And they seem that much more detailed. Whether or not they're accurate or not is a very interesting whole podcast of itself for a memory psychologist. But our memory seems charged around these particular times. And because music engages with memory circuitry, and in particular the emotional memory circuitry of the brain so well, we see very heavy activations in the areas of the brain that connect uh, memory such as the hippocampus and emotions, such as the amygdala, when we are played the songs that we were listening to during that period of our lives. And it becomes part of our narrative. And because we, people say, why can I remember the song lyrics? Uh, And I can't remember what I had for breakfast last Monday. And the simplest answer is, how many times have you thought about what you had for breakfast last Monday? How many times have you listened to that song? In a sense, it's not magic. We do this to ourselves. We expose ourselves a great deal to the music that we love. But there's also an element uh, of music, uh, musical memories being forged with a particular emotional strength uh, and saliency uh, that gives them very high accuracy. I'm reminded actually of, of, of a study that my uh, colleague, Kelly Jakubowski, did uh, where she was looking at memory in children for for music uh, that they're very familiar with, and you'll love this because she did mention Bluey, that she was playing them clips of intros of their favourite shows and varying them in pitch to see how accurately they had formed a memory. And she proved exactly the same thing. If you listen to something over and over again, the pitch memory will become more and more accurate over time. Well, thank you very much, Victoria. Uh, How can we contact you if people want to reach out to you and also the book i remind i remember and remind people is like you are music uh as simple as that but yeah do you have a instagram maybe email i don't know if you want to give it um linkedin 
If people want to find me, the best place to find me is in my uh, current role as the Chief Science Officer of Audison. So uh, www.audison.com. And I am Victoria at audison.com. Thank you very much again. And I look forward to the next episode with you then. Thank you. Can't wait. See you later, Victoria.